0: few days of 1936 as the Arab revolt brought forth the Peel Commission to consider the fate of Palestine a world-famous superstar arrived in the land of Israel to lend his support to the Jewish people and to make a political statement on their behalf an illustrious group of dignitaries including my birthday buddy Klein Weitzman because that guy is everywhere David Ben-Gurion Golda Meir the mayor of Tel Aviv the British High Commissioner and 3,000 guests They all gathered in Tel Aviv to hear what this celebrity had to say, or rather, play. Because the world's greatest living conductor, the Italian Arturo Toscanini, had come to Palestine to head up the inaugural performance of the Palestine Symphony Orchestra, an event he made clear that would use music to protest the fascist movement taking over Europe. The orchestra was made up of Jewish refugees fleeing persecution, and Toscanini had them play a piece by Felix Mendelssohn, the Jewish composer, since Hitler had banned Jews from playing in Germany. Toscanini insisted on paying all his own travel expenses and refused any fee for his services. Solidarity, he declared, is everyone's duty to help the cause according to his means. He stayed for a month, led nine concerts, traveled throughout Palestine, and took the time to get to know as many locals as he could. One story goes that when his chauffeur's pregnant wife was unable to attend a concert, Toscanini simply showed up at their home. He referred to his time in Palestine as a continuous exaltation of the soul, and the work of the Jewish immigrants there as miraculous. Which is totally how I felt after visiting the Boeing factory recently and watching airplanes get built, but that's not really Jewish. Anyway, after the concerts, he made sure that Mussolini and Hitler, who both understood the power of music to make grand statements, knew that he stood without compromise with the Jews, and against anti-semitism. Unfortunately, not everyone was on board with Toscanini's solidarity. The last few years the 1930s found the Zionist movement assaulted on all fronts, from the Arabs in Palestine, from the Nazis in Europe, and from British policies that were steadily closing the door to Jewish immigration. The extent to which the Jews were in dire trouble was made unmistakably clear in 1939, one of the most important events in Zionist history. Which took place out in the Atlantic Ocean. I'm your host, Jason Harris. Welcome back to Jew Auto Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. Two and a half years after Toscanini's concerts in Palestine, Captain Gustav Schroeder paced the harbor in Hamburg, Germany. He was worrying. The German sea captain was looking at 937 people on the dock, waiting to board his ship for a typical transatlantic run to North America. But this time was different, for a ship wasn't going to its usual destination, and wasn't carrying the usual passengers. Most of the 937 men, women, and children waiting to board on May 13, 1939, were German-Jewish refugees trying to get out of Europe. The infamous program Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass, in November of 1938, had convinced those Jews who had not let, yet left Germany that it was imminently time to do so. The Jews on the dock, some of whom had been directly attacked on Kristallnacht, had legally bought entry visas to Cuba, and they were heading to Havana. The ship was called the M.S. St. Louis, and was about to make history, but not so much in a good way. By all accounts, the two-week voyage across the Atlantic was most pleasant. Captain Schroeder knew about the mistreatment of the Jews in Germany, and he was determined not to extend Nazi policies to his ship. Jews were allowed to conduct Shabbat services, they were served good food, there was entertainment every night, children were given swim lessons, and it was either a bust or a portrait of Hitler that was covered up. Arriving in Havana at the end of May, the St. Louis prepared to disembark its refugee passengers, but the Cuban government refused them entry. It seems that just days before the ship was due, Cuba changed its visa rules to allow in only US citizens and absolutely no asylum seekers. After a fruitless five days of negotiation while sitting in the harbor, only a couple dozen people with US visas were allowed off. Captain Schroeder was told to pull up anchor, turn around, and head back across the Atlantic to Germany. But he didn't. With 900 people still on board, he sailed the St. Louis just off the coast of Miami, hoping that the United States would accept the Jewish refugees. But the U.S. had a quota system in place for immigration, and Franklin Roosevelt's Secretary of State persuaded the President not to allow any exceptions for the Jews. So the United States refused to take them in. The St. Louis sailed on to Canada and faced the same rejection. With conditions now worsening aboard the ship, Captain Schroeder had no choice but to set sail back to Europe, but he adamantly refused to bring the Jews back to Germany. Finally, negotiations between the United States and several European countries found a solution. The St. Louis pulled into port in Antwerp, Belgium, and the Jewish refugees were distributed to Britain, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. But if the Jews in those last three countries felt any sense of relief, it didn't last for too long. For exactly one year later, Germany invaded France, Belgium, and the Netherlands, and the Jews of the St. Louis found themselves once again subjected to Nazi persecution. And although the majority of the St. Louis passengers ultimately survived the Holocaust, 254 of them were murdered, mostly in Auschwitz. It was the refugee ship heard round the world, even in a tiny corner of the Middle East, where the Jews of Palestine were preoccupied with a steep decline in their own fortunes. 1939 really sucked for Zionism. Since the 1860s, Zionist thinkers had warned that Jewish life in Europe would someday come to an end. Building a Jewish homeland in Palestine to save Jewish lives was one of the primary roots of our Zionist tree. The fate of the Saint Louis hammered home to the Zionist movement that that moment had arrived. It marked a transition from a dire situation to a truly desperate one. If millions were at risk, but the nations of the world were only willing to take in a few dozen here and there, then the Jewish people really had nowhere to go but Palestine. That idea has animated Israel's existence since the 1930s and the St. Louis was the symbol that exemplified it. That's why I say it's so important. But the Yishuv, the Jewish community in Palestine, was in trouble. The British were furiously backtracking at every promise ever made to the Jews in an effort to placate the Arabs. The Arab revolt that began in 1936 was targeted as much at the British as at the Jews. The British tried to end the fighting by initiating the Peel Commission that government committee that recommended partition for the first time, dividing a Palestine into separate Jewish and Arab states. And although the envisioned Jewish state was dramatically smaller than what the Zionists had hoped, they reluctantly agreed to kind of sort of support the idea. The Arabs rejected it as a whole, and their rebellion began again. The Grand Mufti, Amin al-Husseini, super bad guy, used the opportunity to also declare war on his Arab political enemies engaging in a spree of murder and violence that killed thousands of Palestinians. Some Arab leaders predicted that the Arabs would continue fighting each other for 50 years over this. And another expressed his belief that the Arabs would make peace with the Jews, long before they made peace with each other. I talked last time about the Jewish response to this second stage of the revolt, when the Haggadah and the Irgun engaged in various levels of defense and offense, to much controversy amongst the Zionists themselves, and I'll go into it more in the next episode. I can't quite seem to get out of the 1930s because there's too much going on. Now, in the opening months of 1939, the British government, desperate to bring stability to Palestine before the coming war in Europe, tried to find a compromise solution by drastically reducing Jewish immigration. But the Palestinian Arabs refused to accept anything less than a complete end to immigration. Nothing was working. All this was occurring at the same time as the British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, infamously pursued a policy of appeasement with Germany, allowing Hitler to occupy parts of Czechoslovakia. Alongside appeasing Germany was an effort to appease the Arabs. As I talked about before, given the importance of the Middle East, the British could not afford to let the Arabs go over to Germany's side. The decision to throw out the Balfour Declaration was a strategic decision, not to piss off the Arabs even further even though the British and the Arabs had been fighting each other like crazy for the Arab revolt for a few years now. And so the British finally gave in. On the same day that St. Louis was making its way across the Atlantic to Cuba in May of 1939, the British issued a document that came to be known as the White Paper of 1939. The White Paper declared an effective end to the Balfour Declaration. The White Paper said that since the British could not keep the mandate forever, And since it was never the intention of Britain that a Jewish state should be created over the objections of the Arabs, Britain's formal new policy was now the creation of an independent Arab state in Palestine 10 years from now, in 1949. The British would allow a maximum of 75,000 more Jews into Palestine over the next five years, and after that, no more Jewish immigration would be allowed. The Jewish population would be permanently frozen. And starting immediately, the Jews in Palestine could not purchase any more land. So the door to Palestine was slammed shut. Okay, so if you've been listening to the last few episodes of this podcast, then what do you imagine the reaction to all this was? Well, at first, Arab leaders in the Middle East were willing to accept the white paper. Abdullah the leader of Transjordan and the future king of Jordan, was in favor of it because it meant that Palestine would probably come under his rule, and he much preferred to have a peaceful Jewish population in Palestine than al-Husseini's extremists. But ultimately the Arabs, led by al-Husseini, rejected the white paper as being too favorable to the Jews. Ten more years and 75,000 Jews was still unacceptable to the Palestinian leadership. The British to the sea, they said, and the Jews to their graves. The other Arab leaders fell in line. I can't emphasize this moment enough, because I think it provides a crucial context for much of the rest of the Arab-Israeli conflict until today, in a way that I think we don't usually think about. Up until the White Paper of 1939, the Jews had almost always accepted any agreement which would lead to even a small Jewish homeland with defined borders and guaranteed Jewish autonomy, and the Arabs had always rejected those same proposals. And in doing so, they set up and reinforced an all-or-nothing situation that was impossible to resolve. And that totally screwed them over for the next 80 years. Because here's the thing. The Palestinians' refusal to accept any Jewish presence in Palestine, to refuse under any circumstances to live in a shared space with the Jews, meant that either the Jews or the Arabs would someday have to leave. Al-Husseini merged this zero-sum policy with a determination to meet anything favorable to the Jews with violence. And this made it impossible for the two sides to ever live together, since there would be no security. If an Arab state was to be created, the Jews would not be allowed to live there. And if a Jewish state were to be established, the Arabs would have to leave. But here's where it went wrong. Al-Husseini and his successors banked this position on a bet that the Jewish state would never happen. They made this bet when they attacked the new state of Israel in 1948, and again in 1967, and again in 1973, and again every time Hamas launches rockets at Israel like during the past few weeks. It's a bet that they always lost. And because of this zero-sum policy, when they lost, they lost big. 750,000 Palestinian refugees after 1948, and all that territory in 1967, Gaza, the West Bank, Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, We'll get to that another time. This is a really important context to keep in mind. This uncompromising position has never served the Palestinian people well, clearly, but became so ingrained in the Palestinian national movement in the 1930s that it's become almost impossible to eradicate. Although throughout the years, there have been Arab and Palestinian leaders willing to try to change that. But that's all for later episodes. My point is that I really think that the start of the Palestinian national movement did a disservice to the Palestinian people. The Jewish national movement, Zionism, was based on an idealized vision of a Jewish society with justice and equal rights, gender equality, socialism, and of course religious freedom. And in some ways Israel today reflects those ideals and in other ways Israel, like all other countries, has a long way still to go. But the notion of developing a Jewish homeland in Palestine and of turning that into an actual state, it wasn't the end goal of our Zionist tree. This idealized Jewish society was the goal, and the land of Israel was the vehicle in which it would be achieved. So this gave the Zionist movement a lot of leeway to compromise on matters of territory, for instance. Most Zionist leaders realized that you could create this ideal Jewish society whether the border was over here a little bit or over there a little more. But Palestinian nationalism really didn't develop this idealistic notion of Palestinian society, other than that Palestine would be an Arab territory and the Palestinian Arabs would rule it. Remember the early Palestinian leader Al-Qassam, who criticized Arab leaders for focusing on economic development rather than attacking the British and the Jews. Working for Palestinian independence in Palestine is a perfectly legitimate goal for a nationalist movement, don't get me wrong. But because this was the primary goal, It meant that the Palestinians had no flexibility to compromise. Either they got all of Palestine, or their national movement was a failure. To make sure of it, al-Husseini killed any Arab leaders open to the idea. And by defining the movement almost exclusively by its opposition to Zionism and the British, and with a hefty dose of anti-Semitism, it left the Palestinians with a pretty bleak view. As corny as it is, hope and change is uplifting. Kill all the Jews is not really... And the more the Jews hung on in Palestine, and then created Israel, the more the Palestinians felt compelled to carry out more violence to try to stop it. Look, I'm not going to make the claim that Palestinian nationalism developed solely as an opposition movement to Zionism. The Palestinian movement was part of the broader Arab nationalist movement, which itself has its roots in the early 20th and late 19th century. Some say it traces back even further. It would also be wrong to say that Palestinian nationalism in this context is illegitimate. There were, as I've discussed in this podcast, very real and understandable reasons why the Palestinians feared Jewish immigration and a Jewish homeland in Palestine, and I'm not questioning that. That's real. What I am saying is how crucial this moment was. My argument is that the Palestinians' rejection of the 1939 White Paper set them on a trajectory that has consistently failed them to this day. In order to understand what is going on in Israel right now, we absolutely have to understand this period. Yes, Israel's occupation of the Palestinians, which began in the late 1960s, it plays a huge role in the conflict to Gay. But of equal importance, in my view, is the late 1930s, when the Palestinian national movement boxed the Palestinian people into a strategy of total opposition to the Jews. Hamas is the inheritor of this ideology, still holding on to this idea that through extreme violence can the Jews be kicked out of Palestine. They're making the same bankrupt bet as al-Husseini, forgoing the development of the Gaza Strip in favor of waging violence against the Jews. And like al-Husseini, they keep losing. Where the Palestinians denounce the white paper as still favorable to the Jews, the Zionists condemn the policy as going too far this time, Ben-Gurion warned that the White Paper would force the Jews to take up arms against the British. It seems only too probable, he said, that the Jews will have to fight rather than submit to Arab rule, and repressing a Jewish rebellion will be as unpleasant a task as the repression of the Arab revolt has been. In other words, the Jews can take up armed resistance too. In fact, it had already started, but that's my topic for next episode. The Arabs, though officially against the white paper, were still pretty pleased with its result. It validated their strategy of unrelenting violence against the British. Terrorism works. So much so that now, actually, it was better for the Arabs if the British stayed in Palestine. Because as long as the mandate was in place, Jewish immigration would be frozen. And over the long term, the Arabs would achieve such an overwhelming numerical superiority that they could easily crush any Jewish effort to establish a homeland. It seems counterintuitive, because the Arabs have been fighting to end the mandate, but now the Arabs have no need to fight either the British or the Jews. And so, after around 5,000 Arabs, 2,500 Jews, and 900 British had been killed, the Great Arab Revolt ceased by the summer of 1939. And once again, an uneasy peace, settled on the Jews and the Arabs. They would not fight each other again until 1947. The period of the Great Revolt taught all sides many lessons, and revealed many errors. I already explained how the Palestinians went wrong in their overall strategy. Their refusal to compromise made the conflict intractable. Their use of extreme violence caused the Zionists to begin developing a powerful military capability, which Israel to this day still obsesses over, and by killing any Arab leader who advocated a more moderate approach, and by failing to build a viable economy or the necessary social institutions, Al Husseini ensured the Palestinian national movement would have very little to offer ordinary Palestinians. All of these mistakes and lessons have persisted to this day. And just look at Gaza. But the Zionists made mistakes too. They made two big ones. The first was the mistake they've been making since the 1800s, ignoring the Arabs. Even into the Great Revolt, some Zionist leaders still clung to this naive belief that soon the Arabs would embrace a Jewish homeland and the economic prosperity it brought and would come to see the Jews as their equals. Weitzman was a big proponent of this idea. He really had a hard time giving this up. And I'll give you an example, and I've talked about this before. A key feature of our labor Zionist tree branch was this idea of creating the new Jew, who would become physically and mentally strong through the hard labor of farming and working the land. To achieve this, the Jewish agricultural communities that developed in the early 20th century, like the kibbutz, they used Jewish and not Arab labor, since the point was to make the Jews work the fields and take care of the animals and all that. But this meant that huge parts of the Palestinian economy were closed off to Arab workers. So what would happen to those unemployable and struggling Arabs? Honestly, the Zionist movement for the most part didn't care because they were focused on creating this idealized Jewish society. It wasn't that they ignored the Arabs out of racism. It was that the Arabs simply didn't factor into the long-term goals of Zionism. And the problem with this, of course, was that it led to lasting Arab frustration and resentment. And it also meant that Jews and Arabs could live their lives without much contact with one another, further widening that gulf of understanding. So while the Zionist movement had good reasons to be so laser-focused on developing Jewish society, it was also a huge mistake to assume that the Arabs could be ignored without consequence. Probably the Arabs never would have accepted a Jewish homeland anyway. That seems clear from everything that's transpired. But the Zionist movement could have done a lot more to invest the Arabs more into the society they were building. Not doing so had a huge cost. The second huge mistake that Zionism made was resorting to violence as a response to the Arab revolt, but let's hold that thought until the next episode, when I'll get a lot more into it, because I'm running out of time. So, everyone made mistakes, and those mistakes had devastating consequences. And now, at the end of the 1930s, things were really not looking good for the Zionists. With the Jews under grave threat in Europe and no way to get out, and the door to Palestine slammed shut, and the British purposely siding with the Arabs against the Jews, and the white paper dashing the hopes of creating a Jewish homeland, it seemed that the Zionist project was on its last legs. The mood was grim. At the Zionist Congress of 1939, which was held in Geneva, Switzerland, Chaim Weizmann expressed this forlorn mood. It is with a heavy heart that I take my leave, he said. If, as I hope, we are spared in life and our work continues, who knows? Perhaps a new light will shine upon us from the thick black gloom. There are some things which cannot fail to come to pass, things without which the world cannot be imagined. Almost all of the delegates Weitzman spoke to that day would be murdered in the Holocaust. The Arab Revolt of 1936 to 1939 was not only a huge setback to the Zionist project, but it also left the movement deeply fractured. Jabotinsky had already divided the movement along ideological and political lines, and now the movement was going to be further split along the question of self-defense. Given unrelenting Arab violence and British appeasement, many argued for ditching Havlagah, the Haganah's policy of restraint, in favor of open warfare. Others insisted on the moral sanctity of Havlagah. Jabotinsky himself was on the fence. But by the second half of the 1930s, the Irgun had taken matters into its own hands. Arab terrorism works, they said. Now it's time for Jewish terrorism. That's next episode. Talk to you then.